0: It's been particularly hard for my wife and I going through this season. Um, just, I mean, we uh, what a year. I mean, just what a year. We flooded our kitchen, we were out of our house, we were in a hotel, we were, we were pregnant, uh, COVID-19 our kitchen got finished. And then you went into labor that same night. Black Lives Matter, (laughs) these these social unrest and and the protests. And uh, for both of us, we've been particularly hit hard with um, the Black Lives Matter protests. We are people of color, you might have noticed. And uh, okay, that would (laughs) drop like a ton of bricks. Okay, all right. It's two services, yeah. We're very frazzled right now. Um, It was very hard for us going through Black Lives Matter and uh, what's been coming up with the protests. And just for us personally, we are people of color. We're affected by by this. And we were talking and processing and praying and and having conversations with Charlie and Laurie and talking and processing and praying about how do we respond personally in our lives um, with with our family? And then also, how do we respond as a church? And, and Alyssa and Lori were having a conversation, and Lori had suggested a question and answer time to ask Alyssa about her perceptions and what she's going through and and her perspective on everything. And uh, I said, oh, can I get in on that? And uh, Lori said, "Uh, yeah, of course. And, and so that was for some, you know, undetermined time. And uh, Charlie last week asked me if I was, uh, if I wanted to speak, and I actually God had given me a word uh, two weeks ago, and I so I was like, yes, I I have something to say, and, and and I feel like the Lord has put something on my heart. And as I was praying about it and talking with Alyssa, driving down to the coast uh, this week, I said, Alyssa, would you be willing to do that question and answer this 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 Sunday? And she said, yeah. And I said, okay, well let me let me email Lori. So I, I text Lori, and Lori said, yes, let's do it. And so we're actually going to do a question and answer um, and talk about Black Lives Matter, talk about the stuff going on in society, talk about some of the systemic issues that people of color face and um, how we can respond to it. I think it's really, really important. Um, Oregon is not a very diverse state. One and a half percent of Oregonians are black. When you come to Portland, it improves a little bit, 6.3%. Of Portlanders are black. That means out of every 100 Portlanders, six of them are, are black. It goes up a little bit um, when you include Latino and Asian as in under people of color, but it's still under 10. I believe it's under 10 people per 100 are people of color, and this leads to an interesting experience for white people in Oregon. You can be a white person in Oregon and not have any significant interaction, physical, emotional, any significant interaction with a person of color. You can go your whole life. And that affects how you live, that affects how you were raised, that affects how you function in this space. And it probably affects how you relate and interact with the protests and Black Lives Matter and some of the stuff coming out um, of society right now. And so we just wanted to address that as a leadership and uh, we've been very blessed and we didn't do this last service, but we're very grateful that we have leaders that are willing to do this and that are willing to do the work in their own heart first. So that's actually really touched us, so thank you. So the format of the service will be, Charlie and Laurie will ask us some questions and we'll share our experiences and some historical background and then I'll share a word that I feel like the Lord gave me for this season.
1: So before I ask my first question, I want to set it up with something I read on Facebook, a post from uh, that was posted and shared by a friend of ours named Brian Ferris, um, and the woman that posted this is named Noelle Palmer. I have been hesitant to talk about my son through all of this. I did not want to use his blackness as a platform. Being an adoptive mother of a black son does not give me any first-hand knowledge or experience of what it is like to live in black skin. Even when we had our encounters with racism, I had the power of my white privilege to stand up for my rights. I do have secondhand knowledge, so to speak, as a witness of racial profiling and the secondary pain of one who loves my son. However, as I see so much pushback of those scrambling to continue to blame black people for their encounters with law enforcement, I want to share a couple of stories with the hope that scales can be lifted. My family moved to a new home after my husband was relocated. We purchased a home that had been empty for about six months. We arrived the day before the moving truck to prep the home. I was inside painting and my 14 year old son was raking the leaves in the front yard. Within the first hour of my son out front, I hear the sound of cars racing down the street. I go outside to find three squad cars parked in my driveway and police rushing out of their car. I had no fear of the police, so why should I? And I walk right up to them to inquire what is going on. I could clearly see the moment they saw me, I saw in their faces immediate uh, change in their demeanor and instant calm. They explained that somebody called to report that there was somebody at this house who was not supposed to be there. All I had to do was say, I was the new owner, and they took my word and they left. So many questions. Why did that person who called assume that a 14-year-old child raking leaves was up to no good, breaking some kind of crime that merited calling the police? Why three squad cars in response to one 14-year-old kid raking leaves? Why did my presence instantly calm them? Why did they simply take my word that I was a new homeowner without asking me for proof? I will leave those deductions for others to derive. Another day, while driving on an open road, I sped up to pass a car. In the process of doing so, I was driving over the speed limit. Perfect place, perfect time, passed right by the police. I get pulled over for breaking the law. I broke the law. It took unusually long for the police officers to get out of the car and I could see them talking to each other. Each got out, slowly approached my car with their hands on their guns. That had never happened to me before, so I thought it was strange. As the officer cautiously approached my window, I already had my license out and was holding it to the window. She didn't take it. Instead, she was looking at my passenger, my 15-year-old passenger. She asked me, are you okay, ma'am? She looked at him with a look I've never seen in an officer before it was like she was afraid. Again, I gestured for her to take my license. She asked me for my passenger's driver's license. I said, I uh, clearly stated he is only 15 and does not have a license. She then asked for his school ID and I said it was a Sunday and he does not have it with him. I explained he is my son. She then requested his social security number. Had I known then what I know now, I would have protested in that instant. But I was so confused, I was not used to this kind of police interaction. I I provided his social security number. The two officers proceeded to go back to the car. Forty-five minutes we sat there waiting while they ran their background checks, checking not on me, but rather on my son. This became clear when they provided me information about my son when returning to the car. I stated, I would like to get out of my car to speak to you. Hand shot right back to her gun, again asking, are you okay, ma'am? I said I was fine, but I would like to step out of the car and speak to them. They allowed me, and again, I was able to use my whiteness as privilege and power to confront them on this racial profiling with no fear of retaliation. So many questions. Why was the assumption that I was in danger and in need of help? Why was the focus on a 15-year-old child when I was the one who broke the law? These are only two events of the many where my son was under scrutiny for no reason other than the color of his skin. My son was considered a threat or assumed that he was doing wrong based on the color of his skin. My skin vouched for him. My skin made him okay. My skin had the power to push back against racial profiling and inequality, my skin. In all my interactions with law enforcement, I've been able to reason with and I've been listened to. My word and report have been considered and accepted. Even in instances related to my work in crisis situations, I've been able to use my power, skin color, to push back when I feel the officers were not handling the situation appropriately and they have backed down. For the first 40 years of my life, I had no experiences even remotely resembling those of what our brothers and sisters with black and brown skin spoke about. I've had the benefit of being listened to, so I assumed that there must be something wrong with the way others speak to law enforcement, and that was the problem. I too had the instinct to react to those stories with disbelief as I had no personal reference that I could draw to to make that connection. I too reacted in all of those implicit biases that it must be because they're breaking the law or they're doing something to deserve the officer, uh, the treatment that they received. I had my lens and like many of us, I gauged my lens against the lens of others' experiences and assumed that my lens was the correct one. Beg my pardon for what I'm about to say next. It may come across as brazen and maybe even ruffle some feathers. When it comes to the issue of systemic racism and police brutality against those with black and brown skin, we as a white collective have no grounds to have an opinion that rejects its reality. Just because we have not experienced it does not mean it is not a reality. And in fact, the, the fact that we have not experienced it gives further proof to the reality that it is a racial issue please, my brothers and sisters, rip off those scales and become a part of the solution. So my first question is, can you give us some specific examples of what we may not be aware of as white privilege?
2: Uh Okay, so I'm going to start by defining white privilege. Um, It is an unearned advantage based on race, which can be observed both systematically or individually. Um, um, So I encourage all of you guys to look up, um, it's an article called White Privilege Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack by Peggy McIntosh, um, where she kind of outlined some examples, which was really helpful for me. Um, Her first quote is, "Um, I was taught to see racism only in individual acts of meanness, not in invisible systems conferring dominance on my group. And so some of the examples that I thought were really helpful were, um, as a white person, I can, if I wish, arrange to be in the company of people of my race most of the time. I can go shopping alone most of the time, pretty well assured that I will not be followed or harassed. I can turn on the television or open the front page of the paper and see people of my race widely represented. I can be sure that my children will be given curricular materials that testify to the existence of their race. I can go into a music shop and count on finding the music of my race uh, represented into a supermarket and find the staple foods which fit with my cultural traditions into a hairdresser's shop and find someone who can cut my hair.
0: Okay. I can arrange to protect my children most of the time from people who might not like them. I do not have to educate my children to be aware of systemic racism for their own daily physical protection. I can be pretty sure that my children's teachers and employers will tolerate them if they fit uh, school and workplace norms. My chief worries about them do not concern others' attitudes towards their race. I can be pretty sure that if I talk to the person in charge, I will be facing a person of my race. Something I wanna clarify about white privilege, uh, one of the big misconceptions and sticking points is white privilege is not saying that white people have it easy. It's not saying that white people don't struggle or white people don't have to work hard. Um, White privilege is just the name chosen to encompass the wide systemic support white people have that black people don't. There are some pretty um, specific Instances where this happens that have been proven, um, black people are three times more likely to be pulled over for traffic stops than white people, unless it's dark, then the numbers even out. When a black person is stopped, they are twice as likely than a white person to be searched for that traffic stop to turn into a search in pursuit of drugs, despite the fact that statistically, white people carry drugs more often than black people do. If a white person and a black person have equal purchasing power in a housing market, the white person will be shown more locations than the black person. Uh, Up until very recently, this was more widespread, it has gotten better, but there is some reversion. A white person will qualify for better loans, more money, better rates than an equally comparable black person, same financial history, same financial resources. In job interviews, equally qualified people, the white person will have the advantage in getting the job. These are
3: statistically proven. Okay. You know, as we've been moving into this season and just appreciating and knowing, honoring Miko and Alyssa the way I have, watching them and their walk with the Lord and now having three young, men that they're raising, uh, a perspective kind of landed on me. I have had the honor of loving four children more than I knew I possibly could. And if I knew that my four kids were going to have to face violence or racism or systemic barriers, injustice as a parent, and I ask you as parents, if you knew your children were going to face injustice, how would you respond to that? How would you want to guard and protect them? How would you want to fight for change? We need to try to put our shoe on the other foot. And so, for you, to, I would want to ask can you give us some examples of even um, uh, microaggressions that you've had to face, injustice that you've had to overcome, and areas like that that you want to guard your children from?
0: Uh, well, let me define a microaggression. Uh, a microaggression is defined as a brief and common daily verbal, behavioral, and environmental communication, whether intentional or unintentional, that transmit hostile, derogatory, or negative messages to a target person because they belong to a stigmatized group.
2: So my most common um, uh, occurrence with this, with microaggressions uh, that I could think of was going to the store. and uh, just the thought process that I have going to a store. Um, I, if I can help it, won't bring a bag in. If I can help it, I will have my hands out at all times seen. Um, I will not make, I will not reach for my keys unless I'm at the car, um, all these things. Um, because, you know, if if when it happened the first time, you know, you get followed in the store, you're like, that was weird. And then, you know, it happens the second time, you're like, oh, well, okay, and then, you know, happens more and more, and then you start looking and seeing what's happening with, in my case, with my family, with my dad, who's black, and um, you, know, you talk to your friends, and it's like, it's not, it's not a coincidence, you know? And um, yeah, so then the instance with my kids, um, you know, I have three boys, and they love to play with guns, and um, yeah, like our good friends, Bruce and Becky said, if you, you can take away all the guns, and they'll still make a gun, you know, they'll, they'll have guns. And um, I was so hesitant for them to play any gun play. Um, I was just like, well, you're, not gonna, you're not gonna play with guns. And finally, they have, I bought them water guns a couple weeks ago. But anyway, um, it's just the implications of, I know how the world can look at my children holding a gun. Even if it's a pretend gun, Tamir Rice, was a 12 year old boy that got shot for having a pretend gun. Is this the reality i have and so that would be
0: yeah Uh, i share the same experience i think many people of color share the microaggression of being followed in a store Um, being profiled as more likely to commit a crime and to steal uh, no matter how innocent or obvious or visible i've done the same two-step tango be very obvious don't go into secluded places uh, make sure that if I grab something, I don't wander the store. How many of you guys have ever grabbed something saying, I'm gonna buy this, and you've, or it's even stuck in your pocket, but said, I'm gonna buy this so you, but you keep on wandering the store with it in your hand. That is something I do not do. Because if I do that, I start getting followed. So if I grab something, I don't wander the store, I go and pay for it. Unless I have, clearly have a shopping cart.
2: I always hold out my receipt, always. Um.
0: Yeah. Um, Growing up, I've had plenty of microaggressions, uh, deliberate uh, racial slurs, that sort of thing, um, but the, it's the unintentional, it's the um, subtle ones that people, most people don't even realize how they say it and what they're implying. I, um, even just recently, my my wife told me the other day about an interaction she had with a white woman saying how beautiful our kids were, but then kind of looked at her and said, oh, different fathers?
3: Oh.
0: <laughs> you see? Um growing up, um, my mom did an amazing job with, with us. We didn't have much, but she was recently divorced with two black kids and lived on 50th and Powell and made the decision, I need to move into North Portland, which at that time was the historically black area of Portland. I need to move because they need to be around their culture because I can't give it to them. And so she moved us into North Portland, but she also um, made sure that, I never went to my neighborhood school growing up. My mom always did the research and always looked to see what school was, had the special program or the grant with, with, with the reading and writing or you know what school g- could give me the best opportunities that she could do because we didn't have money so it was public schools and so I always transferred into schools but it wasn't until um, I transferred into high school, I went to Franklin instead of Jefferson. Franklin had uh, uh, about 1,500 students my freshman year, 50 of them were black. That's less than half percent. That was a really different experience for me because before then I grew up in North Portland. I was raised in North Portland. I was surrounded by uh, black people and people of color. My mom was the first white person within five miles of my neighborhood when she first moved there. So it was suddenly different to realize, oh, there's this whole new reality that I actually never experienced where I was immersed, surrounded by white people. The older you get in in Portland and Oregon, the more that becomes the reality. But that was my first interaction. And I was amazed at, I I was, I'm an intelligent person, not to be arrogant. Um, My teachers loved me. I was smart. I was, I, I got what was going on. And I constantly from my teachers heard how amazing I was because I was able to overcome all my disadvantages. And that sounds like an amazing compliment until you start getting older and you start realizing the disadvantages they were talking about. My race, where I lived, it's amazing that I was somehow, I was special because I was able to overcome those. We started a black student union in my high school. In protest, the students started a white student union. They didn't realize the student union was the white student union. They were the super majority. Their views and their their perceptions, their, their perspectives, were taken care of. We needed a black student union because there was a growing population of black people that wanted our voices heard. But that was somehow racist to do, and so they started a white student union. Luckily, the administration stopped it. But raising our kids, we have tons of conversations about parenting and, and how do we do this together, how are we a team. And, and I remember talking to Alyssa and realizing one of, I, get, I can get really hyper with my children, really hyper, I need you to listen to me. Don't, don't argue, don't defy me, don't disobey, I need you to listen to me. And I remember talking to Alyssa one time and coming to the realization that was rooted in fear for my child because I understood that outside of my family home, outside of my home, the way they were treated is different. That on, in general, white people look at children of color and they see them as more mature, they see them as stronger, they see them as more pain tolerant than a comparably aged white child. In practice, that means that if a stranger felt compelled to grab my child, to stop my child, they would probably be more rough, more physical, and more harmful to my child because my child's a person of color. And I had this thing in me saying, You have to listen to me, you have to obey. And it broke my heart because I realized outside of my house, I did not feel free to let my children be children. They have to be little adults so that they aren't seen as threatening. When this first, be, even before this started, I had posted an article that I had read that was so that was so painful because it was asking, it was this mother asking when her child, her boy, stops being this cute, adorable child and starts being a threat. And I read that and it broke my heart because I had three. And they're still at the stage where everyone, they're so beautiful, they're so adorable, they're so sweet. But I know, and I question, just like this mom, what age does it change? Tamir Rice was 12 when he was shot. So that's the pressure that we, we've experienced in some of the ways that we're seeing that reflected onto our children. And it breaks our heart. And there's only so much that we can even do because I can't, I have to prepare my child for the future. I don't want this future and I'm trying to change it, but I have to prepare them for it. I had to have a conversation with my almost four-year-old about racism and the roots of racism in America because of what's going on. My four-year-old, that was three years sooner than I thought I would need to. I always knew I would need to.
3: So that's the that's, uh, wow. answer to that. So when uh, Laurie and I read the article from Facebook, I had no trouble um, understanding from a new perspective, white privilege, that that mom could talk to the police where if she was a person of color and she tried to stand up to the police, I think she'd get a whole different kind of attitude. Uh, but then it made me question how do we become a part of the solution. What needs, we only have authority over ourselves anyway, what needs to change in us? And so I've been doing some real hard work and to be honest I've talked to several close friends about this issue and you know the most common reaction I get is, oh it's too big of an issue, there's really nothing I can do about it and I'm not a racist anyway and so end of discussion. For many people, they feel like there isn't anything, any change that they personally need to make or can make that will help. And I want to challenge all of us to allow the Lord to search us and to go deeper into how we're a part of this. And uh, in managing the grant some years ago, I kept going to different trainings, and one of the trainings was cultural competence. And I'll never forget the part of the training came where the instructor said, okay, if you're in a group situation and you observe somebody facing sexism or racism or injustice, and if you as part of a group just watch and you don't say anything, you now have become part of the problem. And he said, a lot of times you don't know what to say, you're afraid to confront it. And he said, at the very least, you can remember, if somebody does something that seems hurtful to you, then you can say, ouch, that hurt me what you just did to that person and all of it hit the whole room of about 60 of us there was almost a groan that went up it's like I don't even say ouch when I see injustice and something needs to shift and so my question I want to actually read it word for word out of that thought is what attitudes or behaviors need to change in most white people that they are unaware of that make them either part of the problem or keep them from being part
2: of the solution. Um, I I am a big proponent of um, education is so key and listening. Um, I want to read this quote by Christina Marie Noel, and she says, Bias is a reality, and according to a study, uh, research suggests that bias affects our behavior. Thankfully, our bias could be malleable. And that just reminded me of Romans 12.2, which is, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is—His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Um, and then she has some follow-up questions that I thought were, were really helpful. Um, to ask yourself: How do you perceive other races or cultures? What assumptions might you be making about other people subconsciously? How might your beliefs affect affect the decisions you make?
0: Yeah, um, education is is so important. Um, we need to educate ourselves about what's going on, the, the reality of what's going on. And it can be painful, and it can be hard, and it can be um, infuriating. We have a, a dear friend that we met with, and, and she had a, um, she, a white woman, and she was telling us about, um, she was reading the book How to Be Anti-Racist, uh, which is a very <laughs> good book, it's extreme, um, it, it it very much tackles these issues in a really hard way. I don't necessarily recommend starting out with that necessarily, um, but she's going through this book and she talked about having to read, take it in, and be outraged and be angry and feel shame and feel the you know the 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 arguments and let it happen and sit with it and process it with the Lord and. That's, that is how we can become part of the solution. The idea that it's too big an issue, I can't do anything to it, that's, that needs to get broken. It's a systemic issue, but for, it to be a, for there to be a systemic solution, a majority of people need to acknowledge it's an issue. Because then they go, it's an issue and we need to do something about it. So when you say, it's too big an issue, you're actually complicit in, in letting it continue. Um, to deny it's a systemic issue, to say it's an individual issue, that's the same problem. It's not a systemic, uh, it's, not a, it's not an individual issue. I, most of the people I know that have called, that have said racist things to me are not deliberate racists. They're ignorant. They were raised a certain way and they never learned. And, and some of it I, I, I can understand. There's so much of the system that has taught um, that this behavior is okay. There's so much of the system that has taught, you know, I, I respect the older generation. I love the older generation. I respect the wisdom um, and the experience that it, the older generation has. But I also know some of the shortcomings of the older generation's education. And so I don't hate any white person. You know, I've had conversation with somebody I love dearly that tells me, you know, the, the Civil War was fought over states' rights because that's what he was taught. It's not true. The Civil War was fought over slavery. And if you look at the original documents of the founding of the Confederacy, it was all about slavery. The first president of the Confederacy said, we fight this war to keep our slaves. Mm -hmm. But there was a whole process of changing that history, changing that um, narrative, and it got taught. And so there's a whole generation of people that will tell me, no, it was about about civil rights, or it was about uh, states' rights, it wasn't about slavery. That's a racist statement. But I don't think the person saying it is racist. I think they're ignorant. Education is the most important thing. We need to break those. The idea that we've progressed beyond this, why are we looking back? Didn't we end slavery? Wasn't there the Civil Rights Act and in the, in the Voting Act, and don't you have all these protections, and haven't we already leveled the playing field? No, we haven't. A study done in 1969, commissioned by the President of the United States, Lyndon B. Johnson, studied. Uh, looked at the '60s and looked at the underlying causes, and determined that the main cause of the social unrest of the '60s was white racism, not black rage. That the systems that led to the disparities in wealth, that led to disparity in housing, that led to disparity in incarceration, in broken families, was it was a systematic issue, and it suggested its solution was the government um, aggressively spend to start addressing these imbalances. That report kind of got buried. America instead turned to the space race and we landed somebody on the moon. The day after we landed somebody on the moon, one of the largest black newspapers in the country had a headline that said, yesterday the moon, tomorrow, maybe us? A follow-up study in 2014, deliberately looking at that study is asking have things improved, has, has shown that it's actually worse in many cases. The wealth disparity between people of color and white people is larger. The house ownership, which is a huge, the number one asset we can have as normal people, not super rich people, is our house. It's a huge social indicator of status and wealth. Huge gap between black people people of color, and white people. Incarceration has increased. There is progress. I don't ever want to say there isn't progress, but at the same time, more needs to happen. And I just want to say, just, I'm not, I don't want anyone to feel bad about this. I want you to understand the truth. Portland, in Portland, all those statistics that I just said, the wealth disparity, the um, broken families, uh, job income level, and housing, Worse than the national average in Portland. Worse than the national average. Um, so we need to break those attitudes that say, I'm not part of the problem. That say the problem's too big. That says I'm stuck, I can't ever change. That says there's nothing I can do. We can all live better lives. We can all educate ourselves and be better in this area.
1: So, Miko, I want to say it's 10 after. Yeah. If you would like, you can address the other two questions during your message.
0: Um, go ahead and ask the other two questions. Okay. And Because I, I like Alyssa's response, so I would like Alyssa okay. to share. That's good. Yeah.
1: So the last two questions are pretty much the same question, okay. but one is universal church and one is for abiding place. So what do you see as the role of the church in being a voice for change? Do you have any specifics? Church universal? and what are some things that we can do as a Biding Place to be a voice for change?
2: Um, I, I just really feel like we as the church need to embrace and actively celebrate the body. and uh, all, That includes all the expressions, cultures, and races, colors. This means representation. This means seeing gaps in the family of God and going after the disenfranchised, rejected, and lost ones. And um, I'm seeing, you guys have probably seen on Facebook, um, someone made the, um, the correlation between sort of Black Lives Matter and the um, parable of the lost sheep. And so I really love that. So I'll read that. It's from Matthew 18, 12. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly, I tell you, he is happier about the, that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in Heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. The shepherd wasn't fearful; he wasn't insecure about the ninety-nine sheep getting lost or eaten because they were a secure group together, already unified. Right now, Black people specifically are the lost sheep in the church, and I would say further in our stream. Um, you know, we've gone to Bethel events, and every time we go, I'm like, oh, there's there's another Black person. That's oh my gosh. Because in our stream, there's just not, there's not that representation. Um, And I love how in Luke, um, it says, and when he finds it, the lost sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. And in all these conversations I've had with other people, um, I get spurts of hope and encouragement. And I can feel the rejoicing that's coming. Like, you know, you get it in spurts. And I feel like it's only realized when we as a church really stop and realize that a sheep is missing. Um, We realize it's missing, we realize it's worth, and that has not been afforded the same worth as the 99.
0: Bethel um, has actually been of source of um, inspiration for Alyssa and I. They're, um, I mean, they're a mega church at this point. They have about 10,000 people. But they're also uh, based in Redding, California. Redding, California has one point, a population of 1.5% of black people. And so it was, for the longest time, when we go to their events, um, it'd be cool to see someone of our color. I, I never said, oh, shame on, on Bessel about that. You can't control the demographics you're in. Um, but what's been a, a pretty inspiring with Bethel is they've actually, and this only came out because of everything going on, they've been having a lot of conversations internally as a church with their leaders of color and have been working to understand uh, what people of color face in this country. And so in this time, the stuff they've put out, the declarations they've made, have been very inspiring at a time when other churches that are predominantly white, have come out with statements that have minimized, or diminished, or even denied. They've actually come out and said, racism is a scourge on America and we need to change it. That's been really, really inspiring for Alyssa and I. Um, I actually, we we among, in between ourselves, just on the education note, because we're not gonna go into it um, in the in this portion, but we, we do have some resources. If you are interested and want to read some more things, watch some more things to explain this dynamic and explain the history of racism in America and, and what people of color face and, um, white, um, uh, and white privilege and white supremacy. Um, if you wanna dive into that more, into your own study, we do have resources if you wanna talk to us, we can point you in the direction of some, of some, some books and some things to watch to help explain it um, more. Um, so please feel free to come to us and, and ask us about that. And if you want to talk to us personally outside of this, we are always open to meeting with anybody and everybody about this. All we ask is that you come with you know, open heart and open hands to hear what's being said. Um, I, uh, I love what Alyssa said about the 99 and going after the one and valuing the one. And we have to understand that God is a God of diversity. He's not a God of uniformity. He doesn't say everyone look the same. He actually says, I value everybody. And I and remind him of First Peter where it talks about that we're all given an aspect of his manifold grace, that we are all different facets of God, that we're all made in his image. Um, my, there's something on Facebook that I think is, is kind of snarky, but I also think is kind of funny. Um, and it talks about, um, it, very interesting, um, you know, it says, you know, I've read the Bible, it's very interesting that, that the Christians like it so much. I've read the Bible and there's not a white person in it. Um, <laughs> and I and I love the, the snark there. Somebody, you know, so the, somebody kind of commented, you realize that as Christians we all worship a, our Savior was brown. Most likely Jesus looked a little bit more like me than like Charlie. And I'm not, I just, it's just one of those things that I think is very interesting that God is a diverse God. He looks like all of us. He loves all of us. And, and there's this amazing thing that happened at the cross. He broke all the barriers. The gender barrier ended at the cross. You know, before the cross, before, before the Pentecost, Jesus performed a miracle and he fed the 5,000. 5,000 who? 5,000 men, the women and the children Weren't counted, and in fact, so we can we are kind of talk when we talk about that miracle. We actually talk about how that miracle was greater than it's even listed in the Bible because it doesn't talk about the women and the children. Well, how do you know women and children were there? Well, I know children were there because the chi- the person that provided the the seed for the miracle, was a child. So I know children were there. It's very interesting. The person that provided the seed for the feeding of the five thousand wasn't counted. But what happens? what happens is they gather, 120 people gather, 120 men and women gather at Pentecost. And the Spirit falls down and it says, I'll pour out my flesh, I'll pour out my flesh, I'll pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And it talks about your sons and daughters. It suddenly cuts through the the gender divide. On all flesh. It cuts through the ethnic divide, the racial divide. Jesus was amazing. Jesus interacted with the Samaritan the same way he interacted with the Jew. The same way he interacted with the Roman. He didn't, it, he didn't, he didn't let that stop him. He didn't care. And, and by the way, the Samaritans and the Jews are probably the closest biblical New Testament representation of racial segregation, of black and white. So when you, when you look at how Jesus actually interacted with them, it's amazing. He didn't care. He didn't care that you were a Roman centurion. If you had the faith and you had the heart, you got the healing. The outpouring of the Spirit levels the playing field. Every division is destroyed at the cross. One of the things that... One of the motivations for even sharing this and seeking the Lord was... Black Lives Matter, the, the protests started, and it was, it was different for me. This was the second wave of, a black, of the Black Lives Matter. The first wave was about five years ago and it started with the, um, it started in Ferguson. You had the, is it incidents like Timur Rice, Trayvon Martin. You had these incidents that sparked this outrage. And this movement started. And it was still going, and it had still been going on, but we, as, a, as the P- American people, kind of turned our attention away from it. You know, we, we, And I don't mean this in a critical way. We kind of got tired of it. We got used to it. And we moved on, and other things happened. Elections and all that happened. And, and I remember when that first happened, I got angry. When the first movement happened, I was, yes, this is real. This is a need. This isn't... This, isn't, this is all true. We need to reform. We need to change. We need to address this injustice. I was angry and passionate about it. This second wave that happened with the killing of Ahmaud Arbery, that happened with the killing of George Floyd, that happened with the, um, the incidents with Christian um, in Central Park. A new wave happened, a bigger wave. First time that there was protests of millions in all 50 states. It's still going on daily. Big deal. And I have the same feelings, but this time I, was, I had this great sorrow. Because the thing that changed in the five years is I had three black boys. And I said, Lord, this has to change. This has to change. I, can't, I, need, this, I need a better future for my children. What can we do? How do I handle this? And I went onto Facebook and I went onto social media and I watched the news and I saw this reaction the church had and it broke my heart. I saw the church posting memes that minimized what was going on. I saw the church posting conspiracy theories about who was really behind it and why all the reasons why you shouldn't support Black Lives Matter and all the reasons why this was actually Satan and, and, and the real spirit wasn't a spirit of, of, of racism. It was a spirit of division that, actually is, is, that they're actually operating in and it was turning the, the, the narrative back on the, the, the victims who are crying out in pain and saying, here's why I can't support you. Here's why I can't believe you. Here's why I don't want to listen to you. And it just broke. It broke my heart. It broke my heart. And I said, Lord, how, how do we respond? And and I and I we had a friend of ours. Um, she's a, a white woman, and and uh, she's she she um, had a child the same time my wife had a child, and so that's how we 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 met. And and she wrote this post. And, and her post was in, in response to some of the the moves to reform the police because her husband uh, is a is a with, is a police officer in training, and, and, and just so she, just, she had this response, uh, and she didn't do it maliciously, it wasn't mean, it was in complete innocence, um, but there was just so, mu- so many misconceptions in what she said. One of the big ones that just bo- bother me, it personally bothers me, is, and Charlie even mentioned it, I, I believe, either you mentioned it to me personally, or you mentioned it here, I can't remember, but this idea of, if you just follow the rules, you'll be all right that's not true for people of color. That's not true. And so that was one of her things. And and she said some other stuff. And I just, I got really worked up. And now I have a really good social media policy. I go onto social media. I read social media. The only time I post on social media is typically to say happy birthday. That's it. Because I know myself. And that's wisdom for me. And but I remember I read this, this and I said, I have to respond to her. I have to. She's a friend. I, I mean, I just I have to respond because there's just so much in this that is so wrong. And she just doesn't understand. She doesn't know. I got to respond. And, and I got really worked up and I spent all morning I had a fight with my wife because I was so worked up and tense about it. I'm like, keep the kids away from me. I'm busy. This is important. And I wrote out this page long response. And then I didn't send it because I'm smart and I'm wise. And I just needed to get it out. Um, But it got me thinking, and I do want to share the first part of it. And the first part of it was a warning. Church, we can't be on the wrong side of history. We can't. We can't be on the wrong side of history. We can't be the Christians that used the Bible to support slavery. We can't be the Christians that did not care when they took the gays, the gypsies, and the Jews away. We can't be those Christians. We can't be those Christians that use the Bible to minimize women and denied women the vote. We can't be on the wrong side of history on this. We have to be on the right side. We have to be on the right side. The church should be leading this. The church should be fighting for racial reconciliation. The church should be fighting for this divide to be healed. The church should be on the front lines and instead I see that a huge segment of the church has abdicated their ability to influence because they've shut off their heart and they've said here's the reasons I won't support it, here's the reasons I can't support it, here's what I really believe is happening, so I'm gonna take myself away from the table and I'm telling you guys if the church does that, the church removes itself from the table, people are gonna take our place and you won't like what happens, and you won't have a say because you've removed yourself from the conversation. The Lord gave me two pictures, two words about this situation. Um, The first one is the promised land. The people of of Egypt going to the promised land. You realize that only two people that came out of Egypt entered the promised land? Only two people out of all of them And it was because the people, the the Israelites, couldn't break their paradigm. They couldn't break their thinking. Despite everything, despite the miracles, their clothes not wearing out, food being provided, water from the rock, they couldn't break this paradigm that told them what was comfortable and what they knew was better than what was unknown, but was what was promised to them. And so every time something bad happened, they started to grumble. And they started to complain. And they started saying, we must, we must go back. We need to go back to Israel. We might have been slaves, but we were comfortable. We were taken care of. They fed us. Ignoring the fact that they were being taken care of, they were being fed. It's very interesting. They weren't comfortable. Their pursuit of comfort prevented them from entering the promised land. Out of the 12 spies that went in to scout out the promised land, they knew, by the way, it was the promised land. They knew it was the promised land. They knew it was promised to them. They went there, they saw the amazing blessings. They saw the future. They saw the honey and the milk and the grapes as big as your head. But then they saw the giants. And they didn't see that God was bigger than the giants. Only two of them said, we can take the giants with God. It's all right. He promised this to us. We can take the giants. Only two. And so what happened? The rest of the Israelites wandered and wandered until the last one finally died off. I'm telling you, I don't want a lost generation of Christians. I don't want a lost generation of Christians. I want us to enter that promised land, that land of unity, that land where there's no division. I want us to enter it all, from the youngest to the oldest. We need to break the paradigms. We need to look with eyes of Caleb that saw the giants but saw God bigger than the giants. We need that. We cry out and we believe in this church for revival. We believe a revival's coming. I have to tell you guys, revival does not happen unless there is cultural transformation. You can't have cultural transformation unless you have personal transformation, and you can't have personal transformation unless you humble yourself. I've seen that. I've seen that though. I've I've, I've seen Christians responding saying, "God, um, Jesus." wasn't a social justice warrior. And I get what they're saying. I get the political aspect of what they're talking about, but I'm letting you guys know Jesus was a cultural transformation warrior. He was there to change. He was there to change the Jews' culture. He was there to change the world. (laughs) Jesus might not be a social justice warrior, but he's the champion of the world and he's the savior of the world. I see, I've seen posts saying Jesus wouldn't agree with what's going on. Jesus wouldn't agree with the violence. Jesus wouldn't agree with, with, the, uh, with, with the, the property damage. Jesus wouldn't be there. And, and I disagree. I don't think he'd agree. I think he'd be there, though. Because the Jesus I know, when he laid out what he was called to do, he read from Isaiah 61. And I just want to read from Isaiah 61 right now. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness." the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified, that when they they will then rebuild the ancient ruins, they will raise up the former devastations, and they will repair the ruined cities, the desolation of many generations. Racism in this country, racism existed in this land before there was an America. Last year was 200 years from the first African slave being brought onto the soil. 400 years, the desolation of generations. Where would Jesus be in this moment? He'd be with Black Lives Matter. He would be crying out of the, of the injustice. He would be calling his church to stand up and to raise the city, rebuild the city, <laughs> peel back the desolations. That's what the church should be doing in this season. We shouldn't be protesting the protest. You know what's interesting? The cities that have had the least violence are the cities where the church has joined the protest. New Orleans, which you think would be a hotbed of that because of the massive black population, actually has been relatively peaceful because the church stepped in and Black pastors and white pastors got together and they prayed and they cried out and they repented and they said we're sorry and they invited God into their city. They invited unity and not division and there, was, there has been less violence in those cities. That's where the church should be, in the protest. Jesus warned his disciples about two leavens. He said, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And most of us in this church, because we we hate religion. We fight religion. We don't like it. We We don't give it space. So what most of us understand, the leaven of the Pharisees, the religious spirit that says you have to earn it that says you're not good on your own, you have to supplement. And we fight that. We fight that with the sacrifice of Jesus, the free sacrifice, that he gave his life freely, the, the, the unconditional love of our Lord. That's how we fight that. And so most of us understand that the leaven of the Pharisees is that religion and, and that we break that by understanding you never earned it, so don't worry about it. It's a free gift. And live in that freedom. I, th- I don't think we talk about the, Herod of, the, the leaven of Herod enough, honestly. I said this to Troy um, and Laurie in a meeting. I said there's an unholy union between Christianity and politics. There's an unholy union between Christianity and the, the spirit, the political spirit. And it needs to get broken. It needs to get broken in America. The political spirit divides into groups. It, it's the spirit that makes you clump into a group, get your support from that group, and everybody that isn't in that group is your enemy. And you only accept people when they're fully in the group. And if they're, if, if, for instance, if someone says, I'm a Christian, but I, um, I think we should reform the cops. I, I think we should disband or, or whatever, defund the cops. A lot of us, because of how we've connected with the political spirit, would go, I don't know if you're actually a Christian. Because what, what the political spirit does is it says, if you're a Christian, here's all these other things that you have to believe that aren't actually part of it. In the first service, I said it this way. I said, the Republican Party is not God's party. And I said, the Democratic Party isn't Satan's party. It's not God's party either. God isn't political. God isn't about division. When I was younger, I did a study on the, on the, um, the I, I kind of share this, I love politics. I don't love the political spirit. I love politics. Before I got called into the ministry, I was gonna be the first black president in the United States. I love politics. But let me tell you something, as somebody that has studied it, loves it, follows it, politics is the art of lying. It's lying to you to get your support, telling you what it thinks you want to hear to get your support. It wants your support because that's how it stays in power. That's what politics are, that's what politicians are. There's good politicians, there's bad politicians, but they're still politicians and you have to be aware of that. I had a really good conversation with somebody about how come we don't fix some of the issues in America. And I said, because it's not politically expedient. And they said, what does that mean? I said, when, if someone's a professional politician, they want to keep on being a politician. So they make decisions that will allow people to stay happy enough with them that they stay in the office. There's some things that every politician across the board is going to tell you, yeah, this is broke, it's a broke system, I would love to fix it, but there's not enough support. If I did that, I'd lose office, and guess what? I want to be in office more than I actually want to fix this issue. That's politics. We have to be really careful of political spirit. I'm not saying that every Republican is evil or every Democrat is evil. I'm not saying that every Democratic idea is good or every Republican idea is good. I'm saying we have to stop tying our faith into what political party we're a part of. The minute we do that, we actually open this door for the political spirit to come in and start separating us. And there are some people in the church that are against Black Lives Matter because of political reasons. Because they're frightened of other things that they see attached to Black Lives Matter. So they won't even support this Black Lives Matter cry, this pain that says we have lived in this system for too long, we've, we've been victims of this system for too long, hear our cry, hear our pain, help us change this, because black people alone, people of color alone can't change it. There's a, white people are still the majority, guys. Now, for the political people out there, I have bad news. In my lifetime, that will change. We are going to be a minority-majority country. It keeps on moving a little bit. The earliest number I've seen is in 30 years. The latest number I've seen is closer to 40. That means there'll be more minorities combined than white people. Just for the political people out there, something to scare you. And that's my point. The political spirit will abandon you and betray you because it doesn't care. It only cares about the issue you care about as long as you're important enough that it needs your support. The minute it doesn't need your support, it'll abandon you. We can have a personal conversation about that more. I'm not going to use this platform for that. So the, the second word that relates to this is, I heard the Lord say, and I'm ending. I heard the Lord say, I'm sifting my church. I'm sifting my people. You have to understand something. The Bible talks about, when the, when the Bible uses wheat as an example and a metaphor for us, there's a couple aspects to it. First of all, the Bible talks about the wheat and the tares. And then the Bible talks about wheat and chaff and they're different. The tear is a weed that looks like wheat. And you can't tell if it's wheat or not until the harvest comes. The way you tell it's wheat when the harvest comes is the wheat is heavy with fruit and it bows. The tear is fake, it's artificial and empty of substance and it stands upright. And God says that in the last day in the final judgment there will be a, 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 a division where all the tares will be taken and burned you'll know the terrors because they won't submit. They will not humble themselves before God. There's a shaking going on right now. There's a division going on right now where he is revealing the tares. He's saying, those who will not humble themselves in front of me, those who will not say, take anything in me, stopping your glor- glory from go- coming out, take anything, anything, I humble myself, anything, Father, any preconceived notion, any prejudice, any implicit bias, any paradigm, take it away. Renew me. Transform my mind. Conform my heart. The wheat goes through another process, though. So you humble yourself and you open the door to that process. Then the Lord starts the threshing. And that's where the chaff comes in because the wheat is surrounded by chaff. Chaff is indigestible, it's hard. You need to get rid of it to actually get to the nutrition in wheat. That's the chaff. The process of removing the chaff is called threshing. In the good old days, that meant you beat it. How many of you guys understand? We're going through this season. You might start feeling beat up. I felt beat up. I had to, you know what I had to confront to even get to this point where, listen, I could be on the stage right now? I had to confront a fear of man. Because I, our church, and I love our church, I love you all, our church is white. And I'm like, we're going to have to talk about this in front of our church. And I don't know how they're going to react. And I've seen some stuff on Facebook that makes me question. And I'm going to have to be vulnerable to them. I had to overcome. I had to get beat up. Because I, I wanted to just be angry in my own room. Let me just be angry at my house. Let me just, you know, go on Facebook, go in my room, scream a little bit, and then come out relaxed and calm. And Lord said, no, that's not the solution. I had to fight fear of man. It's, we're getting beat up. COVID-19, this, the, the, the social unrest, this is all this process where he's threshing us. The next step is good, though. The next step is called winnowing. Winnowing is, is actually, it's a process where you use wind to remove the chaff. And what you do is you throw the wheat up and you let the wind catch the chaff. The chaff will blow away, the wheat will fall. And I feel like we're entering this season that the Lord is saying, I'm, I am preparing to blow I am preparing. The wind of the Spirit is going to come rushing through. And all of this process will make sense because you'll get hit with that wind and the chaff will fly away. The paradigms will go away. All the ingrown habits and ideas will blow away and the door will be wide open for my glory to come through. And that's where we're at. So when I... (laughs) When I see Black Lives Matter, one of the things that I said in first service is I want you to hear the cry of pain and respond to the cry of pain and ignore the politics. Leave the politics at the door. If you want to truly affect this movement, if you really want to affect our nation, we need to have a heart that loves, not a political heart, not a heart that goes, I love you unless and only if you believe everything I believe, that says it's okay to disagree with the, the conversation around the police. It is okay to disagree with that. I won't think badly of you. you. You can think defund the police is a bad idea. I'm okay with that. I don't mind. That's not the real issue for me. The real issue for me is the cry of pain from people of color saying, we, we are hurting. We need your help. We don't need white saviors. We need white friends. We need white... Mentors, white mothers and fathers. We need people that will look at us and value us. That will let us know we're Imago days. Let us know we're valuable members of society. Look at us and treat us as valuable members of society. Not write us off. So Father, I just pray right now. Father, we say no to the spirit of Religion, we say no to the political spirit and any agreement that we have given it in our lives, Father, we say reveal it so that we can break it. Reveal it so that we can sever it, Father. I pray you'd start increasing our Holy Spirit discernment that when we read something or see something, we wouldn't just automatically agree because it seems to agree with our opinion. But we'd have a critical, a critical mind, a mind that critiques and looks and, and, and sees connections that we see the God connections in what's being said, that we see how we can step in and and bring your kingdom and your glory into the situation, Father. Father, we say no to the spirit of racism and we say it will fall. And Father, we declare that the church is going to be the swinger of that that sling, Father. And love is going to be the stone that we launch at the spirit and it will fall and it will be defeated in Jesus' name. And Father, I just pray that the heart that you've given us, we ask for more. We bow down, we submit, and we humble ourselves. And we say, take anything away that is obstructing our ability to love everybody. And the last thing, Father, give us a filter for diversity. Let us see the beauty that you see when you look across and you see all of the nations all of the tongues, all of the tribes glorifying you. Give us the vision of a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-generational body of God worshiping you that we might see the value that everyone has. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.